This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the One Verse Podcast. We're doing a series on the topic of hell in preparation for my book, What is Hell?, which should be due out first week of June of 2019. Lots of people have been reading early copies of this book, sending me feedback, and so far it has been overwhelmingly positive. One person told me that this is probably my best book I have written yet, mainly because it deals with such a difficult topic, the topic of hell, and it deals with it in a creative way with an explanation that makes sense of all of the various passages about hell, and in a way that doesn't send people, doesn't turn God into a monster, doesn't send people to burn and scream and suffer in flames for eternity. Also, I don't believe in universalism or annihilationism either. I present a fourth view in the book, and so that is coming out in June. Now, as we get towards Easter, I do also want to invite you. Oh, by the way, you can pre-order the book, What is Hell? On Amazon right now for $2.99. That is the Kindle version. The paperback version is not available for pre-order yet. Uh, But as we gear up for Easter, you should consider getting my books, The Atonement of God and Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. These look at the crucifixion of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross. So far, these two books are my most popular books, my bestsellers. In fact, right now, today, as I speak, The Atonement of God is a number one bestseller in uh, the UK. In fact, just as I look at the listing here on Amazon, it is rated, ranked 1,604 in the entire store. So that's up against Harry Potter and John Grisham and all these other books as well. So uh, 1,604 Uh, out of all the books available on UK. Anyway, and number one in Christian theological reference. Uh, 83 out of religion and spirituality, which is pretty good as well. There's over 500,000 books in the religion and spirituality category, and mine's rated number 83. So again, not too bad, but it is a very popular book, along with Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Get your copies this week on Amazon or any bookstore available, and uh, just start preparing your mind for... Easter, or the what we celebrate, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, okay? So, with all of that in mind, let's get back to this study of the outer darkness. What is the outer darkness? Does it refer to hell? Now, uh, there are three passages in Scripture which refer to the outer darkness, and all three come from the words of Jesus in three different passages— in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 8:12, Matthew 22:13, and Matthew 25:30. Now, in all three instances, the phrase outer darkness is also described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, all right? And so because of this, this outer darkness idea and then this weeping and gnashing of teeth idea it doesn't sound like a very great place, very fun place, very enjoyable place to be. And so many people have equated these terms, outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth, with hell. But you know, even before we begin to look at the context of these passages, you should probably have some difficulties, some problems with equating outer darkness with hell, primarily because usually 
when people think about hell, they think about a place of burning and flames, right? Well, all flames that we know of anyway, <laughs> uh, put off light. I had a guy email me this week saying that there might be such a thing as dark flames or, or lightless flames. Well, if that's the case, I don't know about it, and I'm not sure that science does either, so you'd have to do a little bit of special pleading and reading into texts for that. But the thing is, is it seems logically impossible, based on everything we know about light and flames and darkness, for there to be a place that is filled with flames, you know, a lake of fire or something like that, that is also a place of darkness. The two seem to be mutually exclusive. Now, we're going to be talking about the lake of fire later uh, in later episodes, podcast studies, and of course in my book, What is Hell? But for now, I just want you to get this understanding that hell, whatever it is, it can't, it doesn't seem to be that it can be a place of fire and darkness because that's, that's not logically possible based on everything we know. All right? So uh, one of the descriptions or the other, I'm going to say both, but one, at least one of the other cannot be referring to hell as a place of eternal suffering in the afterlife. Okay? And what we're going to see in today's study is that this phrase outer darkness, in fact, does not, when you look at them in their context, the phrase in its context, does not refer to any sort of experience of unbelievers in the afterlife. Quite to the contrary, the phrase outer darkness seems to refer, are you ready? To the initial experience of some believers, some Christians, when Jesus first returns to this earth in the future. I don't know if you're hearing that. I'm getting some sort of emergency response thing on my cell phone there, emergency notification, but I'll have to check that later. A uh, little buzzing there. Anyway, uh, the point is outer darkness doesn't refer to hell. When we study the passages in their context, it refers to the experience of some believers at the initial, when Jesus first returns, there's going to be a wedding feast of the Lamb. Some people will miss out on that. They will rather than participate in the light and joy and dancing and singing and feasting and celebration of his return. They will instead be on the outside looking in. They will be outside the party in the darkness surrounding the light and joy of the party. And their initial experience of Jesus' return, this is for Christians, will be regret and grief and sadness. Okay? And the reason, there's lots of reasons for this. We'll look at a few as we go along here. But basically, they were not ready for the arrival of their king. When Jesus returns, as we know, there's going to be a wedding feast. It will be filled with all these wonderful experiences. Some Christians will miss out on that. They will be in the darkness outside. And rather than joy and singing and dancing, they will be weeping and gnashing their teeth in regret and shame at missing out. Okay? Now, that's really all you need to know about outer darkness and weeping and ashing of teeth. But if you want to learn more, we are going to look briefly at the three texts in Matthew that refer to outer darkness and the weeping of gnashing of teeth. The first one is this uh, Matthew 8, 12. And uh, here Jesus is teaching that while many from all corners of the earth will sit down with Abraham in the kingdom of heaven, the sons of the kingdom will be cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right? Now, Jesus said these things in the context after he noticed the faith of a Gentile centurion, a Roman military official. All right? 
And uh, he, Jesus stated that he had not found such great faith in all of Israel. And I write about this passage, by the way, in my book, What is Faith?, where I talk about great faith and little faith. If you're curious about that whole concept, I'm not going to say anything more about it now. But basically, Jesus is contrasting the faith of the centurion with the faith that he has encountered with many of the people in Israel. And the image of sitting down with Abraham in Matthew 8:11 refers to the kingdom of heaven arriving in its fullness and glory. This is the future a wedding feast, a initial inauguration ceremony, celebra- celebration when Jesus returns uh, physically to this earth sometime in the future. Now, uh, yes, Jesus did inaugurate his kingdom 2,000 years ago when he lived, died, and rose again. That was the initial inauguration of his kingdom. And we're, in a sense, living in it now of a sort, and we're trying to bring it more as a reality now by how we live and follow Jesus. But as we look around this world, we recognize that Jesus is not ruling and reigning the way we think he should in all ways and in every location. And so in the future, when he returns and sets up his throne and his kingdom uh, to rule without end, that is at the very beginning, there will be this party. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 8 with this, this future sitting down with Abraham, okay? And Jesus is saying that when this future event happens and the citizens of the kingdom are invited to sit with Abraham at this celebration feast, it will be people like the Gentiles, especially this Gentile centurion who had great faith that will participate in the celebration. Uh, Jesus says there, there will be other sons of the kingdom. Right Again, the Israelite people tended to think that they were the only ones who were going to primarily participate with the Messiah when he came, and they would be ruling over the rest of the world. Jesus is saying, no, some of the Israelite people will be there, but there will also be other sons of the kingdom, non-Israelites, Gentiles, who will also participate in the feast. And furthermore, there will be some sons of the kingdom, some Israelites, who will not participate in the feast. And the Israelite people hearing this would say, what? What? <laughs> We're the chosen nation of God. We're the elect people. How could we not participate uh, in the feast, this celebration when the Messiah comes? And Jesus is explaining because some of the Gentiles, like the centurion, have more faith than some who do not. And so some of the Israelites will be excluded. They will be in the outer darkness. They will be excluded from the light and joy of that inauguration party. Now, it's very essential to note that if Jesus was referring to unregenerate people, uh, unbelievers, non-Christians, who were going to be spending eternity in hell, okay, when he refers to outer darkness, he would not call them sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom are those who are members and citizens of the kingdom. And yet Jesus says that some of the sons of the kingdom will be in the outer darkness. And so some people say this, oh, well, this means that some Christians can lose their eternal life. No, because the outer darkness isn't referring to eternal life. It's referring to that initial celebration ceremony, a party, when the full arrival, when Jesus brings the full arrival of God's rule and reign on earth. That's what is in reference to the kingdom of God, all right? So, what is Jesus teaching in Matthew 8? That some sons of the kingdom will fail to participate in the party because they did not have the right beliefs and behaviors to warrant a seat at that table. 
All right. Yes, they still have eternal life. Yes, they will still spend eternity with God. All right. But rather than participate in that initial party, they will stand outside the glow of the joyful celebration, watching from the darkness with profound regret and shame for how they lived life on earth. All right. So hell is not in view in Matthew 8 12. It rather describes the experience some Christians, genuine believers, will have because they miss out on that initial inauguration party when Jesus returns to rule and reign on earth. Okay? So let's go on to the second text then, Matthew twenty-two thirteen. This is the second time in the Gospel of Matthew where the outer darkness is referred to. And once again, we see that the phrase is used in connection with this celebration, this wedding feast. And so therefore, we know this isn't hell, exactly, uh, for Jesus specifically tells a parable about who gets to participate in this wedding feast, in this future celebration. And in the parable, this is Matthew 22, 1 through 14, it's the parable of the wedding feast. Many people are initially invited but they're too busy to attend, and they give all these excuses. And so what happens is the king sends out his servants into the highways and byways, you know, the streets and back corners and alleyways, to find anyone and everyone they can find. And again, this is an example of how when Jesus first arrived, many of the Jewish people were invited, but they didn't have time for the Messiah. Jesus wasn't exactly what they were expecting for or wanting in a Messiah, so they rejected him. So Jesus sends out his apostles to bring in Gentiles. And then we see this happen in the book of Acts. All right, and that's why you and I are part of the church today, so we can be thankful for this. All right, but here's what happens. As a result, many people attend this feast, both good and bad. Yes, Christians can be both good and bad. Yet one man shows up the feast who is not wearing a wedding garment. And so the king has him thrown out of the party into where? The outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, many people have wondered how the man should have known what to wear to the wedding celebration. You know, or maybe he was poor and so he couldn't afford the proper attire. But many scholars have pointed out, and we even read about this in the book of Judges, Right when Samson goes out and gets, uh, he kills some people to bring some wedding garments for his wedding guests. In Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cultures, it was typical, normal, customary for the host to provide proper wedding garments for his guests as a gift to them, sharing in his celebration, sharing in his joy. He would give them clothes to wear, and that way also he made sure everybody was wearing the right clothes at his party the way he wanted them to. All right, so in this case, regardless of this man's social position, who wasn't wearing the right clothes, he would have been given garments to wear at the celebration. But for some reason, we don't know, the text doesn't say, Jesus doesn't tell us, this man decides not to put on the clothing he had been given. He comes wearing his own clothes. He thought, my clothes are just fine. You know, I don't need to wear those garments. We don't know exactly what was thinking or what was going on, but all we know is he did not provide the clothing that was provided to him by the king. And so he was wrong for doing this. It's a, uh, an insult to the king, and so he is removed from the celebration, and he is sent outside, away from the lights and feasting of the party, and out there he experiences weeping and gnashing of teeth, great shame and regret. Now again, Lots of interpretations on this, but let's just think this through. First of all, the fact that this man is at the wedding feast, he gets into the wedding feast, he's there, that proves 
He is a genuine believer. There will not be any non-Christians. There will not be any non-believers at the wedding feast. He's there, therefore he is an unbeliever. I mean, if he was an unbeliever headed for hell, how did he get to the wedding celebration in the first place? He couldn't have even entered into the doors. All right, so therefore he is a believer, and he therefore was granted access to the feast. But he didn't come wearing the proper clothing, and so he is removed from the feast. And again, his removal doesn't mean he loses his eternal life all right, ends up in hell. This is simply a disciplinary process in which the man is not allowed to participate in this initial inauguration celebration. All right. Um, In an article on this topic, Gregory Sepa writes, the wedding garment is a figure for righteous living. Therefore, this man did not faithfully perform the good works that are necessary to be present at the wedding banquet. Eternal salvation is not an issue in this passage. I agree. Um, The man represents a person he did believe in Jesus for eternal life. He does have eternal life. But he fails to put on the righteous garments that God provides. It's not imputed righteousness. This is probably practical, ongoing sanctification righteousness in this life. And so as a result, he lives selfishly. He lives sinfully throughout his life. And although he gets eternal life, he gets entrance into the wedding feast initially, and he does get to live forever with God, he has eternal life, he misses out on that initial inauguration banquet. Joshua Ryan Butler wrote an excellent book called Skeletons in God's Closet, and here's what he wrote about this passage. When the king shows up, the prodigals and prostitutes are running into the kingdom, while the self-righteous and self-made are weeping outside the party. The sick, poor, blind, and lame are partying up at God's wedding feast, while those who thought their own clothes were good enough are cast out into the darkness. So again, the outer darkness is not hell, just like in Matthew 8. It instead describes the initial experience of some unfaithful Christians at the beginning of the future rule and reign of Jesus Christ when he comes a second time. All right, second coming of Jesus begins with the wedding feast of the Lamb. Those who do not look forward with expectation for Jesus' return, and those who don't live in light of his imminent return, well, then they, they, they live a different way. They live sinfully and selfishly and unrighteously. And as a result, they miss out on the joy and excitement when their king, when Jesus does return. It reminds me a little bit of Scrooge in The Christmas Carol, uh, both in the book and the movie. You probably remember the movie, especially maybe even the Mickey Mouse Christmas Carol, where Scrooge McDuck, you know, is standing outside in the cold and the snow and the darkness out in the lonely street on Christmas Eve, and the family is inside with the turkey and the candlelights and the warm fire, and they're, 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 they're laughing and they're eating, and they're, there's love in there and joy and light. And he's standing on the dark street outside, looking through that window, wishing he could have what they have. I think it is similar to something like that, that some Christians will experience at the initial inauguration, banquet, celebration of the wedding feast of the Lamb. All right? Um, and, and that is what Jesus is describing here. There's a great little book called What is the Outer Darkness? It's by Zane Hodges and Robert Wilkin, where it's actually a discussion between the two of them, and then the book is a transcript of their discussion. 
But uh, in the book, uh, What is the Outer Darkness?, Zane Hodges says this, Matthew 22 doesn't say there were a bunch of torturers out there in the darkness who suddenly take this poor man who is tied up hand and foot and start torturing him. (laughs) Okay? Uh, The imagery is one of exclusion and limitation of activity. That's what being tied hand and foot means. He can't really do anything. Exclusion from the lighted banqueting hall is a synonym for co-reigning with Jesus Christ. And I would emphasize just primarily at the initial return of Jesus, not for all eternity, not for, uh, you know, forever. It's just that initial celebration ceremony. Okay, so that's Matthew 22. What about Matthew 25, 30? This is the third and final passage in Matthew that refers to the outer darkness. And this is near the end of the parable of the talents. You know what happens. There's this Lord. He's going away. He brings in three servants, gives them each a different level of talents, tells them to invest them while he's gone. Then he comes back and calls them to account for what they've done and then rewards them based on how well they did with their talents. Now, uh, most People believe, most Bible students, Bible teachers, pastors, scholars believe that the parable of the talents refers to God's gift to believers, you know, with our spiritual gifts and our abilities and opportunities that we have in this life. And we're supposed to use those wisely, invest them, and and get uh, something more from them in a sense. And uh, that's the way, you know, you probably often heard this preach. What benefits, what blessings, what spiritual gifts, what opportunities has God given you? Make sure you're exercising those, using those, investing those wisely, because when Jesus returns, he's going to call to account for what you've done. Okay, and then you don't want to be this third servant who buried his talent under the ground and, and just gave, he got one and gave one back, and the master says, at least you could have put it in the bank and gained some interest, okay? Now, That's the way most people understand the passage. And honestly, if that is correct, then this uh, parable would be saying exactly the same thing as the other two times in Matthew that talk about Jesus returning and he praises and rewards two servants who invested their talents wisely, and then one who doesn't, and he gets cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And basically, the understanding of this parable would be exactly the same as the other two. And that would be the end of it, and you could read it that way. It would be fine. However, I have a different way of understanding the parable of the talents, and I've written about it elsewhere I'm not going to get into it now, but uh, you can do a Google search for the parable of the talents revisited and see my explanation of the parable of the talents, a, a brief explanation. But basically, let me just sort of summarize for you how I believe the parable of the talents should be understood. First of all, it's very important to recognize that when your Bible translation in, in Matthew 25, 14 says the kingdom of heaven... You might notice if you have like a a New American Standard or New King James or something, that that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is in italics. That means it is not in the original Greek. It was added by the translators. All right? And now I would say, and notice the kingdom of heaven is in the preceding parable, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, and is also in the following parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats, in Matthew 25, 31 to 46. 
All right, but this middle parable does not have the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And that's because I believe Jesus is contrasting this parable with the other two. The other two sort of sandwich this parable. The other two parables do describe the kingdom of heaven, but this middle parable, the parable of the talents, describes the kingdom of this world. And Jesus is contrasting the ways of the kingdom of heaven with the ways of the kingdom of this world. And there's numerous lines of evidence that support this view. Chief among them is the fact that this man who travels to a far country would have been understood by the audience that Jesus was speaking to to be quite evil in the first century Mediterranean world. All right? uh, not only do the actions of this person, this king, match those of King Herod, Okay, he went to Rome, a far country, so that he could become a king, even though he had no right to be king. It's exactly what King Herod did before he was king. He was just a, a soldier of sorts, a, a Roman leader, a military leader. He goes off to, to, uh, to, to Rome and becomes crowned king and comes back and says, I'm now king of the Jews. And like, what? <laughs> You're not even Jewish. All right. And so uh, when Jesus is telling this about this man who goes off to the far country to become king, everyone would have thought of King Herod. First of all, not Jesus, but King Herod. Also, the values of this man actually represent the opposite of what Jesus taught and encouraged. You may not know this. Here in modern Western civilization, we are guided by our, our greatest value is material possessions. We are a materialistic society, and we tend to read scripture, ancient scripture, through that lens. But in the days of Jesus and Paul and the early church, and even Moses and Abraham and Isaac, all of the Old Testament and New Testament, really, they were not materialistic societies. Their primary values were honor and shame, right? They would all—we try to get material possessions, bigger houses, nicer cars, better clothes, those sorts of things, okay? These are material possessions. They tried to gain honor for themselves so that people thought better of themselves and they could be honored in the city and among their friends and family and neighbors and at their workplaces, okay? And uh, in an honor-shame culture, uh, they believed that money and possessions were zero-sum commodities, which meant, okay, that means there was only a limited supply of possessions and money. Now think about what this means. If there is a limited supply, if it is a zero sum, you know, there's only a set amount, say 1,000 pieces. It's obviously more than that, but let's just say 1,000 pieces of gold. There's only 1,000 pieces of gold to go around. That means that if you get more, let's say you have 10 and now you get 20, then that means that someone else now has less. The only way for you to get more is to take it away from somebody else. And that behavior in an honor-shame culture was considered extremely shameful. All right? Anyone who acquired something more is automatically judged to be a thief. You can read this about this in Culture World of Jesus by John Pilch, Social Science Commentary on the Synoptic Gospels by Bruce Molina. Okay, there's lots of books out there that teach on this. I wrote my master's thesis on this very topic as well. So uh, it's, it's very important to understanding scripture. But 
Basically, when we understand honor, shame, and zero-sum economy, all right, uh, uh, that the Old Testament, that the New Testament operated under, we read the parable of the talents in a whole different way. Because now, in the parable of the talents, who is behaving shamefully? It's not the third uh, servant. He actually is the only one who behaves honorably because he doesn't gain any on his talent. He keeps what he has and gives it back to the master when he returns. The, the other two servants are the ones who behave shamefully because they double their talent, therefore stealing from other people, making other people have less. All right? So Jesus is saying that if one of his disciples, okay, again, remember, he's contrasting the parables, I'm sorry, the, the kingdom of heaven with the kingdom of this world. And he's saying, if you, one of my disciples, are going to not look for my coming, um, the parable of the ten virgins, and instead you are going to participate in the kingdom of this world by imitating its greedy ways, then you are going to operate according to the rules. You are going to operate in very shameful ways. Shameful according to the eyes of society, and also shameful according to the ways of the kingdom of heaven. And if you do that, though, if you do that, Operating shamefully in that way, oh yes, you'll gain some friends, you'll gain some power, you'll gain wealth for yourself, you may even gain praise from various rulers who often operate in the same ways. However, if you behave according to the ways of the kingdom of heaven and do not seek to steal from others and enrich yourself on the backs of others by stealing from them, then you will be like this third servant in this world. And they will despise you and scorn you and reject you and maybe even banish you to the edges of society and culture. This third servant gets cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing teeth. Here, with this understanding, we're not talking about the inauguration ceremony that will happen when Jesus returns. Here we're talking about the experience of some Christians in this life when we don't live according to the ways and rules of this world the greedy, shameful ways of the kingdom of this world. All right? So Jesus is saying, again, he's contrasting the ways of the kingdom of heaven with the ways of the kingdom of this world. And the parable of the talents is not about the return of Jesus, but about the two ways that people can live, that the followers of Jesus can live in this life now. We can help the rulers of this world steal from others and enrich themselves and also get enriched in the process, but behave shamefully on the way. or we can refuse to play that evil game and instead keep what we have, protect it, yes, but also work so that we don't steal from others. And this will gain us condemnation from the rulers of this world. And they will even steal from us what we have. That's what happens in the uh, parable. The ruler steals the one talent from the one who didn't uh, uh, duplicate it and gives it to the one who has ten. All right, uh, but, but Jesus says, don't worry, that's not the end of the story. All right, and he goes on to talk about uh, the parable, these other, this other parable of the kingdom of God next. Now, by the way, Zacchaeus is a perfect example of this. And in fact, in Luke 19, uh, Luke immediately in, uh, uh, includes the story of Zacchaeus right after the parable of the talents, which once again shows this is what he has in mind. Zacchaeus shows these two ways of living. 
first, Zacchaeus was living according to the ways of this world, and he was stealing from people, using the tax laws to, to enrich himself. And of course, he had lots of friends and power as a result. But then he becomes a disciple of Jesus, and what does he do? He gives away four times as much as he stole from everybody else. And of course, as a result, what happens? <laughs> ah, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth from the world's perspective. He likely lost his job, his friends, his house, his wealth, everything. But he gained Jesus. He gained discipleship. He no longer had the ear of the powerful politicians, but now he had God's ear and God had his ear. And he could live in light of that, knowing that when he stood before Jesus in eternity, he would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Okay? So Zacchaeus is the perfect example of the two ways of living. And Luke includes the story of Zacchaeus right after the story of the parable of the talents in Luke 19. That shows us that this is indeed what Jesus had in mind when he tells this story. Okay? So here, with the parable of the talents... The imagery represents uh, how the people of this world will respond to us if we do not live according to their rules. But the surrounding two parables show us, the parable of the, uh, the, the ten virgins and the parable of the sheep and the goats, show us that, look, if you miss out on the party of this world, don't worry, there's a better party coming for you. And even if you are rejected and despised by the kingdoms of this world and the rulers of this world, don't worry, you will be accepted and blessed and praised and welcomed by the rulers of the kingdom of heaven, by Jesus himself, when we stand before him at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right? The values and behaviors of the two kingdoms are diametrically opposed to one another. And the consequences for actions are different as well. All right? So once again, notice this is the third time and third and last time the outer darkness is referred to. And again, I don't care which way, well, I do. I think my way of reading the parable of the talents is preferable. But if you go the other way, say, no, this is referring to believers standing before the judgment seat of Christ, fine. Either way, though, notice that it does not refer to hell. And the same with the weeping of gnashing of teeth. Whichever way you read this third and final parable, uh, uh, use of the phrase, outer darkness, either way, it doesn't refer to hell. It refers to missing out on the party. Um, weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to ex uh, profound shame and regret. Uh, it's an image of loss, right? And, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's no fun to miss out on the joys and privileges and riches and parties and powers of this life, okay? But remember, there's something better coming for us. But still, even in that understanding, it's referring to missing out on something, outer darkness, life outside the party. That's what uh, the phrase outer darkness is referring to. All right, but it's better to miss out on the party here and now in this life than it is to miss out on the party when Jesus returns, right? And so how do we do that? Well, Jesus told us earlier in Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. All right? Yes, we might be reviled and hated by men now, but we will receive a warm and rich welcome by Jesus when he returns. So, what is the outer darkness? Why is it described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth? I think it's pretty clear. 
It's not a reference to hell at all. In no way does this refer to the experience of unbelievers, unregenerate, unredeemed people in the afterlife when they suffer and scream and torment, weep and gnash their teeth for all eternity. That's not the view. That is not in view when Jesus is talking about this. Instead, it is describing the experience of some Christians in this life when we don't get to experience the parties of this world, the privileges and joys that this world offers because we're not willing to live according to their rules and ways. And also, some Christians who do live that way, they're going to miss out on the party when Jesus returns. All right? And so that is the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bottom line, the outer darkness does not refer to hell. All right? There are no passages in Scripture which describe hell as a place of darkness where people are tormented for eternity as they wail and gnash their teeth. There is not one passage in the Bible that talks about that. Again, we'll talk about the passages about fire, lake of fire. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at the concepts of the abyss and Tartarus mentioned by Peter. We'll look at Hades. Okay, we're seeing a theme here, though. Now that we've seen Sheol last week, or, or two weeks ago, and Gehenna the week before, we're seeing a theme, aren't we? Same now with outer darkness. Jesus' teaching on the outer darkness are a warning for believers on how to live our life now, looking for the soon and blessed return of our Lord and Jesus, Savior Jesus Christ. And look, you don't need to be too concerned. I mean, you should be concerned. We all want to make sure we live in that party, but it's not going to last for an eternity. Remember, after the wedding feast of the Lamb, every tear will be wiped away. That's Revelation 21.4. So that all children... Even those who missed out on the wedding feast, even those who are in the outer darkness where there's shame and regret, they will be invited to participate in the never-ending joy and peace of the new heavens and new earth, where there will be no more death, no more sorrow, and no more pain. (laughs) Can't you wait for that? I can't. Look, I imagine you had some questions about this. Maybe you found it extremely liberating to know what the Jesus is talking about when he refers to weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you have a question or comments, you can leave it in the uh, blog post that goes along with this episode. It's just at redeeminggod.com slash outer darkness, I believe is what it is. Let me just check that. And uh, there's a book coming out as well on this called What is Hell? Make sure you pre-order that on Amazon if you'd like. Oh, the, 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 I'm sorry, the URL, the website address is Outer Darkness Hell. RedeemingGod.com, Outer Darkness Hell. You can find it that way. Or just search Google for what is the Outer Darkness, RedeemingGod.com. And, and remember, don't forget, in preparation for Resurrection Sunday, where we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, check out my books, The Atonement of God and Nothing But the Blood of Jesus. Both of them will get you your mind frame in the right place to understand what was really happening when Jesus went to the cross. He wasn't there to pay for our sins so that God could love us again. No, God has always loved us and always forgiven us for all of our sins, past, present, and future. So why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Well, you have to read my books to find out or listen to some of my podcasts or read some of my blog posts at redeeminggod.com. Either way, thank you for listening. Can't wait to see you next week when we're back here talking about the concepts of the abyss and Tartarus. See you then.